1: Maybe you've lived a life similar to Jacob. You've thrown away opportunities.
0: To the who above.
1: Or maybe you've made mistakes that have brought long-lasting consequences to you and to those who are closest to you. The
0: end descends in perfect love.
1: Jacob came to a point in his life eventually where he said, okay, God, I know I've made a wreck of most of my life, but with what's left of it, I give it to you completely.
0: Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. I'm your host, Nate Elliott, as we join Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Genesis. Jacob and the family is living in Egypt now. Jacob knows he is going to die soon. He has his sons come visit him that he might give them their inheritances and blessings. We left off looking at the blessings of Judah, We join Pastor Will in Genesis chapter 49, verse 9.
1: He goes on to explain now Judah's blessing. Not only will he be the one who will rule, but he says here that kings will come from Judah. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you are gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as an old lion, who shall rouse him up? The idea here is he's describing the history that Judah will have. He will eventually become that preeminent tribe in all of Israel. David, of course, came from the tribe of Judah, as did the rest of the kings of Judah. Throughout that time, young lion to old lion, Judah reigned until their defeat by Babylon in 597 B.C. But verse 10 says this. The scepter, that symbol of ruling, shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Now that is an interesting phrase. What in the world is he talking about? The scepter shall not depart from Judah. The right to rule will not depart from Judah until Shiloh come. Who's Shiloh? Well, Shiloh is a personal name. It means he whose right it is. And see, each king of Judah was to be a steward of this covenant until the one who would complete the covenant came, until the one to whom the scepter rightfully belonged to, and they would turn it over to him. Because of this, the Jews considered this passage to be one of the earliest prophecies of the Messiah. They consider Shiloh to be one of the earliest names of their Messiah. And they believed that when he came, the king's job would be to turn the right to rule over to the one to whom it rightfully belongs. You see, but wait a second, Will. That's 600 years between their defeat by Babylon and the coming of Christ. Well, even though Judah was defeated by Babylon and no longer had kings, they were actually allowed to govern themselves throughout their history. When the Babylonians brought them in, they set them by a few different cities. Tel Aviv is one of them. It's why we have the name now Tel Aviv in in Jerusalem. It was from one of those Babylonian cities that they were staying in. They kept them all together and they did not intermingle other people groups. They allowed them to govern themselves. And so... While they were there, and then the Persians conquered the Babylonians, the Persians allowed them to go back to their homeland. And even then, they allowed them to govern themselves. When the Greeks came in and they conquered the Persians, it's interesting, it's a fascinating story. When you get to the book of Daniel, we'll look at how the Bible prophesied Alexander the Great coming into the promised land. So when Alexander the Great actually came into Jerusalem, he was gonna level the city to the ground, the priests came out and they showed him how he was in their their prophecies. And so he decided he'd let the city stay and he let them govern themselves. The Romans eventually defeated the Greeks, and then they let the Jews govern themselves until the year 87. See, in 87, Herod's son, Herod... Archelaus was dethroned and exiled to Vienna. He was partially Jewish. And he was the one who oversaw and he governed through the Sanhedrin. Caesar Augustus at that point in time replaced him not with another Jewish ruler, but with a Roman procurator who removed the right of self-government from the Jews for the first time in their history. Now, when the Sanhedrin found themselves deprived of their right to self-govern, chapter four of the Babylonian Talmud records the response in folio 37. And I quote, They covered their heads with ashes and their bodies with sackcloth, exclaiming, Woe unto us, for the scepter has departed from Judah, and the Messiah has not come. Little did they know that Jesus was a young man serving with his father as a carpenter in the city of Nazareth. He had come. He had just not revealed himself yet. And yet, what did the rulers of Judah do when Jesus revealed himself? Did they turn over the scepter? No, they clung to it forcefully. And they rejected him, shouting to Pilate, These Very audacious words. We will not have this man to rule over us. We have no king but Caesar. Why would you say that? You lamented the right that you couldn't self-govern, but now you reject your own Messiah and you say we will have Caesar to be our king. And thus the Bible says that the kingdom offer was withdrawn. The promise that the seed of Abraham would be a blessing to all nations did not come to pass at that time. Instead, the one who deserved the scepter gave his life and he shed his blood to redeem mankind. Now, When he comes the second time, it won't be the Lamb of God to be slain for sin. It will not be the peaceful Messiah riding upon the donkey, but it will be the King of Kings who will tread out the winepress of God's wrath. Let's look back here to verse 11 of chapter 49 of Genesis. Binding his foal unto the vine and his donkey's colt unto the choice vine, he washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes shall be red with wine and his teeth White with milk, fascinating. Jesus, the Lion of the Tribe of Judah, when he comes to the people, the Shiloh comes, and unto him will the gathering of the people be, but the people will not gather unto him. And so, instead of taking that donkey and continuing on with a with a reign over his people, he will bind it to the vine. He'll take that colt and he'll bind it to the choice vine. He's done doing things that way, but now he will wash his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. When Jesus came to Jerusalem and was heralded as the Messiah for the first time, he came peacefully riding on the donkey. What picture do we find of Jesus' second coming? We find a very different picture. Turn to Isaiah 63 with me. Prophecy of the return of the Messiah. And when they see him, it mentions here that this will be the question they will ask. Who is this that comes from Edom with dyed garments from Bozrah? This that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. And what's the answer? I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Who is that? That's the Lord, right? Well, then they ask the question when they see him. Wherefore, or why are you red in your apparel and your garments like him that treads the wine fat, just like Jacob prophesied? And he explains, I have trodden the winepress alone, and of the people there was none with me, for I will tread them in mine anger and trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all of my clothing. For the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. And I looked, and there was none to help, and I wondered that there was none to uphold. Therefore, my own arm brought salvation unto me and my fury, it upheld me. And I will tread down the people in my anger and make them drunk in my fury and I will bring down their strength to the earth. Turn over to Revelation 19. It says the same exact thing about Jesus in his return the second time in verse 11. It says, and I saw heaven opened and behold, white horse, He that sat upon him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he does judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew, but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in what? In blood. And his name is called the word of God. And the armies which were in heaven, they followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should smite the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of almighty God. Exactly what Jacob prophesied here in Genesis chapter 49. Pretty cool, huh? The whole history of the lion of Judah right here in Genesis chapter 49. Well, Judah will be given another chance too. For in Revelation 9, we see 12,000 servants of God will be found in them in the last days as well, leading the charge. Verse 13, now we move to the fifth child of Leah, Zebulun. It says, shall dwell at the haven of the sea. He shall be for a haven of ships, and his border shall be unto Zidon. Now, the word there at actually should be by, as Zemulon's land never reached the coastline, so he never dwelt uh, at the haven of the sea. He dwelt by the haven of the sea. He was very close to the coastline. The main trade routes all went through his lands, and so it would be possible to be a haven for those who traveled by ship and sold their goods, because that was the main place they would come to sell. But it mentions here also that he shall be for a haven of ships, and it mentions the last part mentions his border shall be unto Sidon. Now, many claim Jacob is a false prophet here because Zebulun's border never came to the; he could, never even came close to the port city of Sidon. I actually struggled with this myself as I was trying to figure it out because I couldn't find anywhere in the Bible that his border stretched there. So I thought to myself, you know, was there ever a time when Israel redid their borders? Fascinatingly, First Kings chapter four, verse sixteen says something very interesting. In 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 16, Solomon, he divided at the height of his reign, Israel into administrative districts. And when he did that, he did something very interesting with Zebulun and Asher. In 1 Kings 4, 16, you can write it down and read it later if you're taking notes. But it mentions that he set this guy named Baena, the son of Hushai, over the area of Asher and in Ioloth. Now, What's fascinating about that is Ioloth was in Zebulun. What he actually did with the administrative district there is he combined Asher and Zebulun into one place. Well, go look at a map of where the land of Asher is. It goes all the way up to the city of Zidon during the reign of King Solomon, right on the immediate border of that district. So eventually it came true, uh, just not in the immediate timing that we see in the dividing up of the land. Verse 14, now to the last child of Leah. Issachar. Issachar is a strong donkey crouching down between two burdens. The idea is really strong and bony is another word there. Big bone. He's an animal that can really bear the burdens. And he's laying down all kind of lazy like and he's got these two things that need to be taken care of right next to him. And he saw that the rest was good and the lamb that it was pleasant. And he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant unto tribute. So the idea is there's a strong donkey able to do lots of work but he does nothing. He likes his rest. He likes his land. Issachar was the third most populous tribe, largest population, third most largest population of all the tribes of Israel. And Joshua gave them the land of Jezreel, some of the richest agricultural territory in the promised land. And they remained strong for a while, joining their brothers in war against their enemies. But eventually they became very lazy They ignored the enemies around them, thinking no one would challenge them. And eventually, they became the servants of those enemies. As a result, the strong tribe was reduced to a band of slaves. Exactly what Jacob prophesied here. He became a servant unto tribute. Now, in verse 16, we move to Dan, one of the sons of Rachel's handmaid. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent by the way, an adder in the path that bites the horse's heel so that his rider shall fall backward. As one of the sons of the handmaids, it would be easy to be worried that Jacob would not count you as his actual son, that you would be left out of the tribal count there. And so Dan here is the first one to hear Jacob's verdict on this matter. But I love how it starts off. Dan, you're going to judge your people as one of the tribes of Israel. You're equal. I don't view you as a lesser son. I view you as my son in full. And yet for all that graciousness, Dan would have a bad future. He'll be a serpent, by the way, an adder in the path, someone that trips you up all the time that bites the horse's heels so that his rider shall fall backward. The image of the serpent, of course, conjures up the images of hope. Satan himself, right? See, Dan would be the first tribe to go into idolatry. In fact, he would abandon the land assigned to him, and he would go all the way up north into a better land, taking some of the land that belonged to a different tribe. And his lands eventually became the place that housed one of Jeroboam's idolatrous substitute temples that constantly caused Israel, the northern kingdom, to be far from God. While other tribes lay hold of an opportunity for redemption, Dan never does so. His tribe is missing from the list in Revelation chapter 7. So Jacob warning here was not heeded. Verse 18, as you can imagine, this is probably not easy for Jacob to give this bad news to some of his children. Some of his son's futures ended very ugly. Imagine he probably thought to himself, this is my legacy, God. There wasn't a whole lot of hope to be found in Reuben or Dan or some of the other ones. But for all these covenant failures, there is hope. Because the covenant promises, not just Judah, but that the Messiah would come who would rescue not just Israel, but the entire world from its sin. And it is to this hope in verse 18 that in an aside, Jacob bursts out. He cries out here, a declaration of faith in the midst of a lot of darkness. And he says, I have waited for thy salvation, O Lord. I have placed all my hope in, that's what the word waited there means. I have placed my hope in thy salvation, O Lord. If you and I were hearing him say this in Hebrew, what you would hear him say is, Lord, in the midst of all this darkness, my hope is in Yahshua, O Lord. That's what the phrase thy salvation means. Jacob knew the Messiah's name almost 2,000 years before he came. Fascinating, huh? I think others did too. You know, in Proverbs 30, verse 4, you can look it up in your own time, but the writer there asks the question, he says, talking about God's majesty and might and power and all the things that he does, he says, what is his name? And what is the name of his son? You know, when Gabriel appeared to Mary and later to Joseph, he clearly told them that the child's name would be Jesus, which is the Greek form of Yeshua or Joshua. That's what Jesus' real name was, Joshua. For he shall save his people from their sins. Cries out, all my hope is in Yeshua, O Lord. That's the only hope. My kids, they're not gonna be faithful, but Lord, I know the Messiah is coming and he will be faithful. All our hope is in Yeshua too, right? Verse 19, Gad, a troop shall overcome him, but he shall overcome At the last, a band of raiders, it says, shall overcome Gad. Gad settled on the east side of the Jordan, along with Reuben, thus exposing themselves to constant attack by invaders. Gad eventually fell to the Ammonites and they were no more. But in the last days of Revelation 7, they'll muster 12,000 faithful servants of God. It's interesting when you read about these servants, their commitment to God. In Revelation 14, after they are killed and martyred for their faith, it talks about their character. It talks about their commitment to the Lord. It says, these are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are they which follow the lamb wherever he goes. These were redeemed from among men, being the firstfruits unto God and to the lamb. And in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. The tribe of Gad was half-hearted committed to the Lord. That's why they settled on the other side of Jordan. But here we find them at the end wholeheartedly committed to God and to doing the work, even to the point of losing their lives. And I would ask you tonight, as your Commitment half hearted. Don't fail to enter into all the things that God has for you. Well, we move now down to 20. Out of Asher, his bread shall be fat, and he shall yield royal dainties. The word there means fat means fertile. Jacob predicted that Asher would dwell in a fertile land, and he did. Joshua gave Asher the lowlands of Carmel, a territory rich in wheat and in olive oil. Verse 21, Naphtali is a hind let loose. He gives goodly words. Naphtali is a deer running free. Naphtali was given the Galilee region, an easily defensible area that suffered little threat from outside enemies due to its mountainous terrain. In fact, that's the area that Dan moved to later on because they didn't want to deal with the Canaanites in their own land that was assigned to them. But it's fascinating here. It mentions that goodly, he gives beautiful or goodly words. You know, Jesus spent most of his ministry where? In that Galilee region, didn't he? Have there ever been more beautiful words than the ones spoken by our Savior? Verse 22, now we get to Joseph. Oh, Joseph, he says, you are a fruitful bow. Unlike some of these other guys. Even a fruitful bow by a well whose branches run over the wall. You were flourishing. Everything was good. But the archers, they have sorely grieved him and they shot at him and they hated him. And yet his bow abode in strength. And the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. From thence is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. Even by the God of thy father, whom, who shall help you. And by the Almighty, who shall bless you with blessings of heaven above. Blessings of the deep that lies under. Blessings of the breasts and, blessing, and of the womb. The blessings of your father have prevailed over the blessings of my progenitors under the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. They shall be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him that was separate from his brethren. Here we find joseph 's words to his brother to Joseph in front of all the brothers. Now he shows how Joseph was blessed but hated by his brothers who tried to ruin him and yet Joseph remained strong because God Almighty blessed him. This is the reason he gets the double portion. He clung to the Lord. He remained separate, literally a prince, among all of his brothers. See, Joseph's character and faith sets him far apart from all of his brothers. And even though Judah emerged as the leader of the family, Joseph always exhibited a godly character. And thus, the covenant blessing is split. Judah gets to lead the family, but Joseph gets the double portion. I think this is really cool here because we look at Judah and we see redemption, right? A guy who was not doing the right things, a guy who actually abandoned the family at one point in time because he was guilt-ridden and then did his own thing for a many number of years. But we see him redeemed, he comes back to the Lord. But does Joseph a testimony of redemption? He was always faithful, right? A testimony of faithfulness. And maybe you're here tonight and you've grown up following the Lord. Sometimes it's easy to feel like your life isn't special or that you don't even have a testimony. Well, I've just always known the Lord. But you know what? That was Joseph's testimony. And because of that, he got a special blessing. I want to encourage you. If you've never backslidden and you've just always known the Lord, don't despise that. Keep walking with him all your days because that life has a special blessing to it. Verse 27, here we see Benjamin, the final child. It's not very good. Benjamin shall tear in pieces, a raven as a wolf. In the morning he shall devour the prey, and at night he shall divide the spoil. You know, are God's people sheep or are they wolves? We're sheep, right? See, Benjamin here had some of the strongest warriors in all of Israel. And this led to a mentality of preying upon the weak, of ignoring God's laws and not listening to anyone else and what they thought of his behavior. At one point in Judges chapter 20 and chapter 21, all Israel fights a civil war against Benjamin, nearly wiping the tribe out. Now they eventually ally with Judah when the nation split after Solomon dies. And they are in the list of Revelation 7. So the cool news is they end up as sheep instead of wolves. The lesson for us is this, am I open to criticism from others or do I just do as I please because I can? Don't ever let pride get in the way of a good rebuke or a good correction by someone else. Well, all these are the 12 tribes of Israel. And this is that which their father spoke unto them and blessed them. Every one according to his blessing, he blessed them. And he charged them and said unto them, I am to be gathered unto my people. Bury we with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite and the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field of Ephron the Hittite for a possession of a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebecca, his wife. And there I buried Leah. Purchase of the field and of the cave that is therein was from the children of Heth. While Joseph was made to swear that he would bring his bones back to the promised land to bury them there, the burden of remembering their homeland belongs to every one of his sons. Jacob makes it clear here to every single one of them that Egypt isn't their home and that their stay is to be temporary. But I do find it fascinating that he mentions that's where Abraham and Sarah, his wife, were buried, that's where my dad and my mom were buried. And that's where I buried Leah. Jacob, did he love Leah or did he love Rachel? He loved Rachel, right? But Rachel was a poor choice for a wife. We never find her doing anything spiritual. And by burying Leah in the tomb of the covenant members, I think Jacob is declaring what should have been. See, Rachel was Jacob's choice, but I think Leah was God's choice. I believe that with all my heart. And you know what? Let that be a lesson to those of you who have never been married before. If I could have your full attention for just a moment. You don't have to marry somebody just because you love them. You don't have to marry somebody just because you love them. If their character isn't one where you will both challenge each other to love Jesus more every day, then it would be better to move on. Don't make a mistake just because you have strong feelings for somebody like Jacob did. Well, verse 33, when Jacob had made an end of commanding his sons, he gathered up his feet into the bed and he yielded up the ghost and he was gathered unto his people. The moment Jacob's done speaking, Gets in the bed, pulls the covers up, breathes his last, it's over. Talk about a contrast to his father. Son, I'm dying, go out and cook me something to eat. 40 years later, (laughs) he's still going strong. But see, at the end of Jacob's life, he was so close to the Lord. He sees with clarity the future of all of his sons and he finishes in perfect harmony with God. Is it time, God? Yes, it is. Well, then I'm done. Let's go. And he did. Now, if you're the brothers, you're about to experience a lot of grief at the loss of your father. But his words are going to hang in your mind also. And some of those words were not easy to hear. Some of them were rejected. Some of them were rejected for leadership. Some of them were rejected for the blessing. And others were given ominous predictions for their future and the future of their descendants. But you know what? Every single one of them has the opportunity to live the rest of their life sold out to God, like Jacob did, to finish well. And I want to speak to those of you tonight As I close, maybe you've lived a life similar to Jacob. You've thrown away opportunities. Or maybe you've made mistakes that have brought long-lasting consequences to you and to those who are closest to you. Each of you have the same opportunity as these men. Jacob came to a point in his life eventually where he said, Okay, God, I know I've made a wreck of most of my life, but with what's left of it, I give it to you completely. And see, that's the opportunity that every one of us has from this night forward. I heard a phrase once when I was younger, and I'd made some poor decisions, and I wanted to recommit my life to the Lord. And the person who was preaching the message, he said, Will, I want you to know this is the first day of the rest of your life. And that's what tonight can be for you, the first day of a remainder of a life sold out to God that finishes well. You say, well, Will, you don't understand how much of a mess I've made, Really? Have you gone around murdering Christians for your livelihood? I don't think so. See, Paul didn't start very well either, but he finished wonderfully. And it's a great reward for those that do, who take the time that they have left and they say, God, whatever much it might be, I give all of it to you. These were his closing words. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, but not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. Now, the only question then is, will we give the rest of our lives to saying, Lord, I want to be sold out to you from this point forward? I think if you do that, then whatever time is left, no matter how much it compares to the time that you may have messed up beforehand, that there's going to be a crown for you as well. Amen? Let's all stand. Oh, Lord, we look at the life of Jacob and similar to the life of Paul, fighting against you, (laughs) proud, stubborn, and unfortunately, carrying around that baggage of what it means to fight against you, carrying around even some of the scars of what it means to fight against you. But Lord, both Paul and your servant Jacob, they came to a place where they said, okay, God, you can have the rest of my life. And so, Lord, tonight, we want to do the same. To the end of our days, Lord, whatever is left, we give our lives to you fully, that we might finish our course with great joy and declare with Paul, I have fought a good fight. I have kept the faith. I have finished the race that was set before me. Or that when we stand before you, we might be rewarded for that time of faithfulness. We commit our lives to you now in Jesus' name, amen.
0: No matter how your life has ended up, whether you've failed and messed up, or are the victim of someone else's sin, God can restore you and make you whole. You can finish the race. Not just finish it, but finish it strong. With God, anything is possible. Should you have questions about anything, or would like prayer concerning today's message, or for anything at all, please reach out to us. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.